Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase. I have a couple degrees in theology, working on another in philosophy of religion. And throughout my time in my studies, I've had some really great conversations. But unfortunately, those haven't been recorded. So the goal of this podcast is to have similar conversations with experts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life, to then record those and share them with you so you get to learn as I learn. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking again with Joe Schmid. We're going to be talking about divine conceptualism and Platonism and kind of the debate between the two as it's been unfolding in the literature. Um, divine conceptualism saying that abstract objects like the abstract object of a triangle or more particularly in this conversation, propositions, that propositions exist as the meanings of sentences. They're really out there. The Platonist says they exist in well, somewhere, and the divine conceptualist says, no, we'll grab that somewhere and we'll put that right in God's mind. So that's the conversation. Uh, Joe's written a lot of really cool articles about this, uh, mostly just going at Edward Fazer. Uh, I think it started much more friendly, and then Fazer was like, why is this dude obsessed with me? And then here we are. So it's it'll be really fun to talk with Joe about that. Um, before we jump in, though, thanks to everyone who has become a Patreon patron who's making this show possible. Uh, the show is a lot of work. It's crazy. It's a stupid amount of work, but I love it. I would do it anyways. I probably shouldn't say that, but, um, if this is your favorite podcast or YouTube channel, please consider becoming a Patreon patron for five bucks a month or more. You can get uh, early access to episodes as well as a bunch of other goodies over there, stickers and all sorts of fun stuff. So click the link in the description to check out my Patreon. You can leave me a Five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be huge, as well as a comment, and you can like and subscribe. Uh, you can like this, you can comment and subscribe. Joe is pretty active on YouTube, so if you uh, leave him a comment, he might respond here. Or uh, another way to stalk him is to go to Parker's Pensy's Ponciers. Ponciers. Uh, Guillaume Bignon taught me how to say that, but I can't remember now. But it's a Facebook group. If you can figure out how to spell it from my terrible pronunciation, uh, go there and I will let you in, and you can talk a little bit more with Joe and myself. Okay, without further ado, let's pull him in and get talking about divine conceptualism versus Platonism concerning abstract objects like propositions. Joe, thanks so much for coming back on the show, man. I'm excited for this. I enjoyed the many times that I've been on before, and yeah. I am looking forward to this. Yeah, so we've, we've talked about Phaser already and one of his, uh, his proofs. He's got this book, Five Proofs for the Existence of God, and uh, they're pretty interesting. Again, like I said in the intro, man, uh, it started off like a friendly thing. And then Phaser was like, Joe's obsessed with me. What's going on? And I don't think he, t he took it as, as uh, nice anymore. But today we're going to be talking about his Augustinian proof. Um, so he calls it scholastic realism. Maybe can you give us like a, a, rough, a broad outline, a rough sketch of, of what is uh, the Augustinian proof? Yeah. And before we get it going, like I just want to let the audience know that um, – this, what kind of sparked all of this, I guess, was Anderson and Welty's uh, 2011 article, um, The Lord of Non-Contradiction, which it sounds better if you have an English accent, right? Because you say the <laughs> law of non-contradiction, right? So it sounds better. It's like the Lord, the law. So, but good. like, yeah, it sounds better if you have an English accent. Um, but 
that's kind of what sparked all of this. And so Alex Malpass recently wrote an article in the journal Sophia in response to that. And basically, I've also taken an interest in this because Anderson and Welty's argument is similar in relevant respects to an argument for God's existence, as you pointed out, in one of Edward Fazer's or one of Edward Fazer's proofs, the Augustinian proof. And um, as many listeners probably know, I have a book manuscript under review right now entitled Existential Inertia and Classical Theistic Proofs. I go through a whole host of different um, purported proofs or demonstrations of the classical theistic God's existence, including all five of Phasers, but also some more. And one of them is the Augustinian proof. And I have a huge chapter on this. And I also go through in that chapter, Anderson Welty's argument. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I comment on uh, Malpass's article and so on. And in fact, based on this chapter, I made a video on my YouTube channel, Majesty of Reason, where I think it's titled something like, Do Abstract Objects Prove God? So that that's kind of the situatedness for the audience, the context. Yeah. But as for scholastic realism, Phaser kind of demarcates the views into, well, of course, you have anti-realist views, but you also have realist views about abstract objects. Mm -hmm. And so abstract objects are roughly uh, non-causal, non-spatio-temporal things like uh, numbers, mathematical objects, more generally, propositions, properties or universals, and so on. Yeah. Now, so we have anti-realism. That says that there are no such things. There are no abstract objects. Realism says that there are at least some such abstract objects. And so Phaser divides realist views into at least three broad categories. Aristotelian realism, Platonic realism, and scholastic realism. On Phaser's rendition, and I'm going off of memory here, but roughly, an Aristotelian realist says that, um, at least with respect to like things like universals, yes, they exist, but they are imminent to things. They inhere in things. They exist in things. And so that is contrasted with the Platonic realist, which says, no, they're not imminent in things. They exist in a kind of transcendent realm, as it were. Yeah. Um, they are non-spatial-temporal. They don't inhere in the things, but rather... Um, they like things stand in certain participation or exemplification or instantiation relations to the universals, which are non-spatio-temporal properties. So that's a kind of relationalist ontology, whereas the Aristotelian would have a more constituent ontology. Um, the properties and universals are more like constituents of something. They are inherent in it some way. And yeah. that, in, that inherence is usually taken to be primitive. So it's hard to kind of unpack it further. <laughs> right. So those are, that's the Aristotelian realist and the, uh, the, the Platonic realist. But then there's a kind of via media, as it were, a middle way, and that is scholastic realism. So scholastic realism says that it agrees with Aristotelian realism that, yeah, there are imminent universals, there are universals and properties and so on that inhere in things. But also, there's a sense of transcendence to these sorts of things, because they also exist in a necessarily existent infinite divine intellect. And that's, that's God's intellect, of course. Mm -hmm. And so propositions are typically construed as God's thoughts in some way. Properties might be God's concepts, and so on down the list. So this view has also been kind of come to be known as theistic conceptualism, and there are other sorts of nuances here like you might have a theistic activist view where they're not necessarily you know like god causally produces these sorts of things mm -hmm. you get a bunch of different technicalities and nuances but roughly that's the terrain so we're kind of focusing on theistic conceptualism slash scholastic realism where yeah. essentially abstract objects are located in the mind of god so that's good dude I, i'm so glad that you were able to uh give us a summary because you talk super duper fast and you have great recall <laughs> so so that was good um Joe, just just a personal note here, man. Um, you you consider yourself a Platonist? Uh, are you a realist about like propositions at least? 
so I lean towards some form of realism about a number of abstract objects. Um, I take myself to be leaning towards mathematical realism mm -hmm. uh, about like mathematical objects. I lean towards realism about universals and I lean towards realism about propositions. Um, I lean towards anti-realism about possible worlds, but we can set that one aside sure. for uh, another discussion, of course. But yeah. uh, so as for which form of realism, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, if you were, if you were to torture me and to force me to force me to pick a view, yeah, <laughs> I would pick Platonism. Yes. Um, yeah. But do not call me a Platonist, anyone, because I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure which precise form of realism. I think that yeah. there are robust contemporary defenses of Aristotelian realism. I think there are robust contemporary defenses of Platonic realism. I think that each one has certain respective advantages and disadvantages, and it's really difficult. <laughs> and yeah, I also take anti-realism seriously. So um, my, my realist commitments are themselves just leanings. Um, yeah. I need to research much more to have a, like a very firmly settled view, so... Yeah, no, and and uh, as Joe said, like there's a lot of really good defenders uh, for every. I mean, you had Kenny Boyce on, um, and uh, Dungeons and Dragons aside, like he just crushed it. Like he's super duper smart. Um, there's a lot of. I mean, anyone who's a, a William Lane Craig fanboy, uh, dude's a nominalist. And okay. some days I'm like, You're, he's insane. Like that's crazy. <laughs> and I guess you just get to be an ostrich nominalist and stick your hand head in the sand and. But then, man, if you were on the podcast, you'd absolutely eat my lunch on this. Absolutely, so, yeah. So it's it's unreal. Yeah, there's there's a lot of really tough positions. But um, what's fun about this conversation is, uh, especially couching it in terms of like Malpass versus Anderson and Welty, it's like they have agreed on so much so far, and now they're to the point of like, okay, we both think that these things exist. Now, what's the best explanation for them? And uh, yeah, it's kind of nice when you don't have to go through all the the uh indispensability arguments and everything to try yeah. and prove propositions oh my goodness. so yeah and and uh your arguments against uh phaser do this you're you're not saying like well i i don't know maybe some of your criticisms do this but uh because he is kind of fast and loose uh arguing against um the different views he he goes pretty quick right but but also you're saying there's problems there's internal inconsistencies for his view and uh I thought you in in your video that I watched, uh, you talked about premise nine, seven, eleven, and four. Like those are the the, the big ones. Um, I have them in front of me. I'm sure you probably don't have those memorized, but you, I think you have the, the chapter pulled up, right? Can you, I do. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Um, can you can, let's let's start with like premise nine of his Augustinian proof? Uh, mm -hmm. What's the what's the problem with? Maybe I'll, let me read it real quick. If scholastic realism is true, then abstract objects exist not only in contingently existing intellects but also in at least one necessarily existing intellect. So what's the, what's the, what's the problem there? Well, what's difficult is that I numbered in my video, I kind of cut out some of the early portions of oh, uh, gotcha. Phaser's proof. Yeah, gotcha. no, no, it's no worries. I cut out some of the early portions of Phaser's proof that were, I think were like saying that, oh, there are insuperable objections to nominalism. And yeah, there are. There are <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I can't believe that he was able to, anyway. Um, yeah, and he's like, there are insuperable objections to this view. And, and so yeah. like, Okay, um, okay, Boomer, that's what I want to say, but <laughs> definitely not in Super Bowl. The objections that he raised, uh, as Kenny Boyce demonstrated in, in his video with me, as well as I think uh, his arguments against Platonism are very bad. But um, setting that sure, aside... Sure. Joe, if, I mean, yeah, what if if he said, like, hey, uh, you know, Platonism is uh, more probable or things would be more less surprising on Platonism, like, that'd be one way to go instead of saying... <laughs> It's just insuperable. There's problems. <laughs> the the objections are insuperable. And meanwhile, his objections 
many of them. His objections to Platonism just like demonstrably misrepresent Platonism. They yeah. like show blatant like confusions about terminology and so on. It's like, okay, dude. I mean, yeah. But um, but yeah. Anyway, yeah. back to my numbering. So I kind of yeah. I kind of cut out those cringy premises and uh, mm-hmm. I put a, I put my own numbering on it. So nine, as I articulated it, was. Uh, if this one necessarily existent intellect were not also omniscient in the stronger sense that it knows all contingent truths, then it would have unrealized potential and thus not be purely yeah. actual. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You might want to start. We might want to start with premise four. That's that's the that earliest one where I get off. I jump ship. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So premise four says that a necessarily existing intellect would be purely actual. Um, now I just think that that's just obvious. Well. I think it's obviously false. I mean, I'm just I'm just going to say that. Uh, yeah. I think there are insuperable problems for that. No, I'm. I'm <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, why? No, a necessarily existing intellect would not have to be purely actual. It could have potencies for cross-world variance. That is, it could have potentials to vary across worlds. Maybe in one world it performs one act of creation, and in a different world it performs a different act of creation. That doesn't mean that the being doesn't exist in one of the worlds. It could still yeah. be necessarily existent and have accidental properties. So. <laughs> Uh, it, it's essential properties. Yeah, those, of course, couldn't have any potency. Um, but it could still be a necessary being, even though it has some potentialities for cross-world variance, so long as those are potentialities for accidental variance across worlds. So, yeah. This well, Joe, what, what, what about what about? Um, I mean, it seems like a lot's baked in here because he's classical theist, right? Um, uh, dude's Catholic, and and he takes it very seriously. But uh, like tensed, tensed ideas, tensed thoughts, tense like. Uh, if that is an accidental change or whatever in God, which is it doesn't, it's not like it's not essential. If God has a, a tensed uh, true thought, you know, a, tre- a tensed belief, if that is the case, then that would be you know potential, right? Like, but it, but it's not a it's not an essential change. So it seems like if that's possible at all, then you can have a necessary being who can have potentiality. Yeah, even in principle, right? I mean, like. Fazer's trying to argue, like, in principle, from the armchair, like, you couldn't have right. a, a necessarily existent thing that isn't purely actual. And I just, yeah. I, to me, that's, that, that seems clearly false uh, yeah. for the reasons that, that we've been adumbrating. So, yeah, anyway, that's premise four. What was the next one that, that I targeted? Was it nine? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, four, okay. nine, seven, eleven. Oh, okay, let's do seven then. So, oh, yeah, seven was an intellect in which the interlocking system of ideas in question would be conceptually omniscient yeah so what i what i well one thing i say against this is like phaser has essentially just argued that abstract objects correspond to ideas in the mind of god that's Mm -hmm. really all that he's gotten us he hasn't gotten us to knowledge of said ideas all he's got again like it might seem like natural to say like yeah well if there are ideas in a particular mind yeah then the mind would know them but like he needs to show this, right? He needs to demonstrate yeah. why this thing would be not only having the ideas in the mind, but let's say taking some kind of intentional belief-like stance toward them. And also um, in some sense, maybe forming that belief reliably. I don't even know what the conditions are for God's knowledge, but whatever. Yeah. Um, he hasn't shown that it's conceptually omniscient. He's just shown that the ideas are located as it were in the mind. You need to do more work to show that the being in question has knowledge of those ideas merely from the fact that something is located in another thing or that something's located in my mind. It doesn't follow that I have ideas of it. Now you, of course you could say, ah, oh, but, but God's omniscient. Yeah. But here, this is supposed to be an argument for God. So we're not, we're not having a pre given conclusion that this is God. We're trying to establish omniscience in the first place. So you yeah. can't assume omniscience there. So um, anyway, 
I just I'm being brief that, for this because I know we want to get to uh, the, yeah. the divine simplicity stuff. So yeah, well, and um, I, I think that that's a really good point. And even though you know, sometimes in these conversations, it'll be like uh, there's a necessarily existing mind, and this we all call God, and the, you yeah. know, you take from from Thomas, uh, and it and it seems like that that's a move that's being hap- that's happening here too, and saying like, well, they exist in his mind, so he knows them all, but maybe God doesn't have maybe all of his thoughts aren't a current, and so maybe he. I don't know. It's weird. Like you said, like what, what does it look like for God to know something or does he have to have that in mind? Uh, thinking about ourselves, like, is, is there something that's in my mind that I don't remember right now? Can we have suppressed memories? We don't want to say that about God, but like you said, just give us some kind of reason for, for yeah. thinking that now we have omniscience here. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, really, I mean, at, at this stage in the argument, I mean, he's really only shown that uh, there is some kind of mind, not God mm-hmm. yet. Um, and the mind is necessarily existent, and there are concepts within the mind. That's really, yeah. like, all we've gotten. And it's like, I don't even know if this is the sort of being that could have, like, um, propositional attitude-like stances toward right. propositions and toward these concepts, like belief-like right. stances. What if it's just the kind of thing that, that can't have those? I mean, I don't know. I, <laughs> again, we need some sort of justification yeah. for thinking this, right? The onus of justification here is on, is on Phaser to convince us that the thing is omniscient. Yeah, I've thought about that uh, recently with um, various forms of panpsychism. Uh, so maybe, uh, yeah, maybe there's this universal consciousness that doesn't have uh, propositional attitudes, but can ground, uh, if you need a mind, a necessarily existent mind, then this, there, there's different ways to do it. And they're usually, yeah. I don't want to argue for um, panpsychism, but, you know, Philip Goff has, has given a bunch of different types of priority monist, uh, panpsychist views. So there's other things like if, if there's another type of necessary mind, then maybe that mind can ground these things as well. So, yeah, I think there's more there's more to be done for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like we need to write a paper toward a panpsychist conceptualism. That, yeah, that- I, <laughs> I, I, I totally. Yeah, I had this. Uh, I had too many, too many things going, but I wrote a paper on that for, for Brandon Rickabaugh. Um, I still have to. I'll send it to you, man. Maybe we could talk okay. more about it. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. OK, so yeah. the next one was nine. Um Okay, yeah, this, this one will also be really brief of it. Um, yeah. As I numbered it, it says, if this one necessarily existing intellect were not also omniscient in the stronger sense, that it knows all contingent truths, well, then it would have unrealized potential and thus not be purely actual. So yeah. set aside the fact that he hasn't even gotten to purely actual yet, but, but set, set that aside. Let's assume that he has gotten to purely actual. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't follow that uh, if this thing were not also omniscient in the stronger sense that it knows all contingent truths, it doesn't follow that it would have unrealized potential. That would only follow if this thing were first capable of knowing contingent truths, right? If it's not even capable of knowing those, if its, if its cognitive powers are necessarily confined or restricted to just necessary truths and so on, so it's omniscient with respect to the necessary truths, but not with respect to the contingent truths, and it is essentially such, well, then no, can, uh, potency does not follow upon its being, it's not having such knowledge of contingent truths, right? So go back to Aristotle's uh, unmoved mover, right? Aristotle right. has this view of a purely actual being. Just like thought, the, thought, thinking, thought, yes, right? It's it like, is yeah. thought, it is eternal, purely actual thought, thinking itself. Mm-hmm. Aristotle actually argues this from almost like a kind of perfect being theology move. Uh, if I recall correctly, um, 
he basically says, like, if this thing were to think about, even think about this sublunary realm of, of you know, disgusting, lowly, imperfect, you know, constantly changing. Yeah, constantly right. shape shifting. And if it, if it were to think of that, that would like soil its perfection. Right. Yeah. So what it is, is eternal self-thinking thought. Um, and so this thing is like by nature, unaware of like the contingent happenings going on in the world. Yeah. And so this thing doesn't have unrealized potential. This is purely actual. It is purely actual self-thinking thought. It doesn't even have the potential. It doesn't even have the capability of knowing all these contingent things because that would soil its essential and necessary and immutable perfection. Mm -hmm. So like Phaser has not, th this premise just simply assumes that this thing has the ability to know contingent things. And that assumption is not something that Phaser has anywhere justified. Yeah. So that's, that's yet another problem for this thing. And it's nice to contrast that with the traditional Aristotelian like proper Aristotelian is what Aristotle himself thought. It's yeah. nice to compare that with um, what Phaser wants to get out of this argument, which I don't think he can. Yeah, that is really good. I wonder if there's something there too that you could ground contingent truths and pr propositions um, as, as they are uh, in like the, the mind of the unmoved mover without him thinking about it. Because then you'd have this unmoved mover as the, the metaphysical ground of propositions and yet he is not omniscient in the sense that we want to say God is and Phaser wants to say in this case. Yeah, that's that's interesting, man. Yeah, I mean, we have the power to uh, selectively direct our focus on particular thoughts right. and aspects right. of our own mind. Uh, and so uh, who's to rule out that that could also right. be applying to the self-thinking thought? Right. And so, so again, yeah. you'd have to have an argument saying, uh, no, if this necessarily existing mind, all thoughts must be a current. And if, if you don't have that argument, then yeah, maybe we stuff that in the subconscious or something, wherever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that was nine. And then I think, uh, what was it? What 11. Was oh, 11. Uh, oh, well that, that's just what is purely actual must also be omnipotent, fully good, immutable, immaterial, incorporeal, and eternal. So I, uh, I was just very brief on that in my video because I've addressed elsewhere, basically all of Phaser's stage two inferences. I've addressed them on my blog and, and I don't think yeah. I think pretty much all of them don't work. I think yeah. I think immutability does work, but that's pretty much the only one <laughs> for him. So, um, so yeah. Okay. So so um, so we can go around to, to simplicity here. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And this one's this one's really fun because if the argument does go through, it seems like it might be adding complexity to God in a way that Phaser doesn't want to say. Yeah. Exactly. So essentially, what I want to argue is that it seems to me it seems plausible that the Augustinian proof delivers a being that, if existent, or <laughs> delivers a God that, if this is really how God is like, then divine yeah. simplicity, as traditionally articulated, is false. So, what is divine simplicity? Well, yeah. uh, you ask 13 different philosophers and you'll get 15 different answers for that <laughs> one. So, um, but anyway, at least under the traditional version, the traditional strong version of do the doctrine of divine simplicity that I'm working with here, it says that whatever is in God is God, okay? Mm -hmm. Everything intrinsic to God is identical to God. You can see this in, uh, you know, W. Matthews Grant, in Jeff Brower, uh, in Kate Rogers, in all the, you know, Hughes. I, I could go through all these different citations. Um, Bill Valicella, he says this in his Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on divine simplicity. Yeah. Um, Augustine himself said that uh, God is whatever he has. So if God has something, he's identical to that thing. Um, you know, uh, Anselm said, um, you are the very life by which you live. You are whatever you are. He's saying there that whatever we are predicating of, of God as he is in himself, God is that. He is holy that. He yeah. is identical to that. So this is rife 
within the classical theistic tradition. Um, no one is pulling this out of thin air. This formula, whatever is in God is God, that's their traditional doctrine of divine simplicity. You even have James Dolezal writing yeah. a book, writing a book with the title, All That Is In God. Right. That is in reference to the formula, All That Is In God is God. Mm -hmm. Okay, so anyway, that is divine simplicity, as we use it here at least. Yeah. None of this watered down. Oh, well, he can have like these sorts of parts. And <laughs> oh, there, could, there can be something intrinsic to God that's distinct from him. No, yeah. no, yeah. no. Off, off to the gulag. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, anyway, that's divine. That's the traditional divine supposedly that we're working with here. Well, and because that's that's the one Phaser is working with. Right. So even yeah, if you were to play different games and like separable parts, inseparable parts, like Phaser's not using that language because he does want to affirm the, you know, maximal doctrine of simplicity. Yeah, the high-octane version. There it is, um, yeah. Essentially. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's divine simplicity. Now, the problem is you've got God with all these concepts, like all these propositions, like the proposition that one plus one equals two is different from the proposition that I exist. Okay? Mm. One of them is contingent. The other one's necessary. Yeah. Um, that's they're different from each other and if we need to be if we want to be realists about these things we have to say that there are such things they exist they're in reality to say that there are no such things as these propositions is to adopt anti-realism and yet phaser precisely argued against that in his various insuperable arguments against <laughs> against insuperable arguments against these sorts of anti-realist views okay so yeah that that that's what so, so we have to be realist about these sorts of things if we want to preserve the Aris, the Aris, the Augustinian proof. Yeah. But so these things exist. Moreover, I think it's just crystal clear to my mind. To my mind, it's crystal clear that at least some such things are distinct from one another. Um, the universal humanity is numerically distinct from the proposition that one plus one equals two. Uh, <laughs> propositions can't be like instantiated or whatever, or like inherent things, but like uh, the universal humanity can. Um, so, like, there's another difference. I think contingent propositions are different from necessary propositions. I think that um, uh, abstract mathematical objects like triangles are different from numbers. Uh, the number two is different from the number hmm. three. The number three is different from the number 4,014, um, yeah. and so on. But yet there are such things, right? That's, that's realism. So there are things which are such that they're distinct from one another. They're numerically distinct from one another. Yeah. And yet, per the scholastic realist view, they're intrinsic to God. They are in God's mind, okay? So... It is false that whatever is in God is God. The is of identity there. Yeah. Because we have things that are intrinsic to God, which are numerically distinct from God. Something like uh, the number four, or maybe that's a divine concept, but the divine concept of four is different from the number two because they have different different things are true of each. Yeah. So that's, that's the basic problem. The basic problem is, hey, if divine simplicity is true, then whatever is in God is identical to God. But if we want to have a realism, a scholastic realism, it's going to be the case that there are some things intrinsic to God that are not identical to God, like the number two and the number four and the proposition that one plus one equals two and so on. Hence, divine simplicity is false. If we want to hold on to this um, scholastic realist view. Uh, yeah. I, again, for the audience, I don't claim that I don't claim that this is insuperable or that, you know, there aren't <laughs> there aren't ways to get around this. And I don't you know, I don't think we should be using arguments as weapons meant to attack others. Rather, we use them as tools to try to serve debates, to try to serve our intellectual and uh, our dialectical opponents, as it were. Yeah. We should be serving each other with our arguments and being on the same team, trying to use them to probe the fundamental nature of reality and trying to get at truths that matter, right? And we're trying to serve each other with these truths. And so we're not using these to kind of bash down the, the divine simplicity theorist or, or whatever. Right. No, um, we're on the same team as the divine simplicity theorist. We're trying to get at the fundamental nature of reality and let's do so with um, maturity and love and respect 
and a mutual orientation towards the truth. So, yeah, that's a great point, man. Um, yeah, it is, especially because we were going so hard on the insuperability stuff. But it's philosophy, guys. Uh, this that's is something that my, the my theology. I, go so, I just want to say the right, reason right. I go so hard is that is precisely because I value this sort of yeah. service, using arguments as tools, not weapons. That you say you have insuperable, knockdown, decisive things that remove other people from the debate. Okay, that is anyway, I think that there's there are more mature and sophisticated and more loving views that you you can take towards philosophy that are service oriented and truth oriented rather than that kind of polemics and knocking down oriented. So it's precisely because I value that kind of service oriented philosophy that I will uh, harshly criticize the kind of use of these other like, oh, it's insuperable and all that sort of (laughs) thing. So anyway, Yeah. yeah. You almost went into your Swinburne accent there, but um, <laughs> well, you mentioned simplicity. So uh, the the chat or whatever the the comment section right now is not going to be very charitable because people are going wild. I'm sure um, people do not take simplicity uh, lightly. So <laughs> so this is actually I'm glad you said that about about arguments because this is one of the main reasons why I am not. Uh, super heavy on simplicity because I like conceptualism like yeah. a lot. I think it's I think it's great, um, and so I lean way more on conceptualism. So I'm like, I just don't see how it can uh, make sense with simplicity. So if one's got to go, I'm going to go with simplicity. Uh, Brian Leftow, he he does this weird move where he's like, well, um, no, uh, you know, propositions and abstract objects are concepts in God's mind, and Concepts are a what does he say a, a facon de parler or whatever. It's like a way of speaking, and he yeah. doesn't translate either, which is funny because it just stays there as if we all know that. I had to Google it and be like, "What does he talk?" <laughs> I, I knew what he meant, but I didn't know that the direct. It's like a way of speaking. So yeah. he's like, you know, there are concepts in God's mind, but not really. Like, so if you think that I really mean it's a genuine concept, I don't mean that. And you're like, well, Brian, I'm like, what are you talking Bye about? By realism. Yeah, right. And so, so he he says that they're mental events, and so. I thought this was interesting about uh, Phaser. He identifies his position with, he says it's basically uh, Welty's theistic conceptual realism. But man, that's kind of a lot to to bite on. Like you can just say it's divine conceptualism because then you'd have left out to choose from, you'd have Welty, you'd have Paul Gould, you'd have the different theistic activists. But to say it's the realism, now you're committed to saying these are real objects. Leftow says they're not real. It's just mental events. Do you think that his, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here with, with Leftow, but if we were to go the anti-realist route and say these are uh, mental events, and would that help us with simplicity at all? Do any, any just thoughts pop up about whether or not that can secure simplicity and a form of divine conceptualism? Yeah, what's difficult is that, what, what makes this difficult is that I, uh, I haven't looked at this particular portion of Leftow's work. I love yeah. Leftow's work. It's kind of like, it's kind of reminds me of Proust's work. It's kind of technical and I, I really like it for that yeah. reason. Uh, and I think it's pretty innovative. I like Proust's work also. I like yeah. it for that reason. So uh, I've got a huge respect for uh, Brian Leftow. Um, 
But so I'm just going to comment on the view that, that you've specified here, and I'm not going to yeah. make a claim about what Leftow himself says. That's, I'm not saying that I don't trust you. No, dude, I don't trust <laughs> yeah. me. I wouldn't trust. Look at, I mean, look at this book is very thick. Everyone, just so you yeah. know, it's stupid. It's like eight C's. It's got like eight C's thick. Maybe even nine. It's bordering <laughs> it, on nine. It's unreal. Um, and this is a portion where he has said himself. I don't have time or space to say what I'm about to say. And then he says it. So <laughs> even if I did uh, say it right, it's not his fleshed out full yeah. thing, even though it kind of is. Yeah. I mean, I remember because I, I, when I was writing this chapter of my book, I needed to you know, go to different sources like Anderson, Weldy and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And Menzel and so on. And I went to his and I, I remember looking, but this is, you know, like, a year ago or something right. and I like looked at it. So I totally forget what uh, Brian left out uh, said in there, but on what you said, I mean, are there more than one such event events? Yeah, I mean, yeah. are there two such like, maybe he wants to say that there's one event mental event, and it's such that it has the infinitely many contents that are the, the, what the theistic conceptualist identifies with the infinitely many abstracta. But like, that just pushes the problem back a step. I'm going to go to those contents and I'm going to say, what's their ontological status? Right. Are there such things as these contents? If there are, then you've got the things intrinsic to God that are distinct from God. If there aren't such concepts, then you've adopted anti-realism. You've denied that there is such a thing as the number one and the number two and the number three and the number four and, and so on. So like, I don't know, there seems to be this, this fundamental dilemma. Either there yeah. are such abstract objects or there aren't. If there are, you're going to have things intrinsic to God distinct from God. If there aren't, You've got anti-realism. Yeah. Um, so like that's the fundamental dilemma. Now, some people try to try, try to get around this dilemma by like positing different modes or ways of being like yeah. different, like the spooky. Well, I think <laughs> that's my derogatory term. This yeah. kind of spooky conceptual existence. And that's different from like real existence or something um somehow Can't, but let's just bring minong back we're just minongians and this is fine you know just multiple <laughs> ways of being yeah so like something doesn't really exist but it exists conceptually okay so like are there these concepts well you have to say you, there is no such thing as this you know generic r like the the yeah. generic existence you have to say are there sub conceptual such things yeah but are there sub real such things no uh so you anyway that gets an ontological pluralism ontological monism i think right. there are some 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 by my lights powerful arguments for monism but um even setting that aside yeah um i just i don't think that i don't think that this sort of sort of move works i mean firstly I do struggle. I mean, I have to admit that I do struggle to get a grip on on what this distinction amounts to: conceptual existence versus real existence. Uh, and it's, okay, so I guess I should spell out how this how this is purported to help the mm -hmm. classical theist here. So the idea is that, well, when we're saying that whatever is in God is God, we're saying that whatever is really in God is God. Like whatever really exists that's intrinsic to God yeah. is identical to God. But the thing is, these sorts of abstract objects that exist in the mind of God because they're conceptual items or whatever, uh, they don't really exist. They just conceptually exist. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not a threat to divine simplicity. It's not a threat to that formula that I just gave, whatever yeah. really exists that's in God is God. It's not a threat if you have, as it were, multiple things, things that uh, conceptually exist in God, right? That's not yeah. a threat to that, that, um, and not immediately a threat to that, that thesis. Um, now, I don't know. I, I just I find this difficult, firstly, because it's not clear to me what this distinction amounts to. Right. I mean, like when we say that 
um, like like we see er, classical theists often talk about real relations and um, like mixed relations, or sometimes they're called like conceptual relations. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. like God doesn't bear real relations to creation in the sense of like hey, had God not been so related, God would have been different, or, right. you know, God doesn't instantiate some polyadic relational property that, you know, kind of latches him on to creation, as it were. Yeah. So instead, God's relations to creatures are conceptual. They are, and how we kind of cognize and represent and speak of God. Yeah. But in that case, right, we're not going to be citing these conceptual relations to do metaphysical explanatory work precisely because it's like, it's in our minds. Sorry. It's in, there, there's in nothing to them. They don't yeah. have real, whatever that real, real existence. Yeah. Is. When I, yeah. when we ask what explains why creatures exist, we're not going to say because God is related to them in such and such a way, because these aren't real relations. They are conceptual no. relations that exist in our mind. So it's like, It'd be it, like it, it's like, it's cry. It's like a, I don't know if it's a um, category error, but it's like, well, why, it's like positing Bilbo Baggins as a explanation for something, wh- why the table is here or something. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, it's not that kind of thing if he's only conceptually exists. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, I don't think that if you take this conceptual existent route, you're, I don't think you're going to be able to preserve. It's like you're, you're, t- you're kicking the ladder out from under you. You've got to realism in the first place by positing these abstract objects that do certain metaphysical work in your ontology. Yeah. But if later on you're forced to kind of, you're forced to kind of give up, as it were, their, their robust reality, uh, and instead just say they have this kind of conceptual existence. It seems as though you are removing yourself from that explanatory work that they were supposed to do. Now, of course, you still have God, and God really exists, and God's able to cause these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But the realist arguments were not citing God. Otherwise, they'd be theistic no. arguments. Right. They were citing the abstract objects themselves that, that explain, say, objective resemblance, and yeah. that explain um, the truth of subject-predicate discourse, and that explain you know these other sorts of things. So it's just difficult for me to, to see how the, how you could preserve the very arguments that got you to realism in the first place, which in turn served as a stepping stone to you getting to the, the theistic conceptual realism. So yeah. that, that's one thing that I, that I want to say in, in response to that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, it still seems to me that are there such concepts just at, like, are the, are, let me just define a minimal sense of are like, are they, is it true that such things are in reality or like, is it, is it yeah. true that are, is something true of them? Right? Is something true of them? Are they are they there? <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> if they are, if they are there, then there are more such one. There's more than one of them. And so there are some kind of reality. Maybe it's even conceptual reality, but like that in itself might seem to pose a challenge to this classical theism. If there is something that is not numerically identical to God that's in God, well, then you have uncaused things that are distinct from God. Like you have yeah. all these worries to aseity and so on, all these things that push the classical theist to adopt divine simplicity in the first place. It seems as though you're kicking that letter out from under you as well, because even if they have conceptual existence, whatever that means, um, there are still such things, even though they might conceptually be there and they're distinct from God. And so you have these uncaused non-God things like, oh, my goodness, like that's a red flag. Right. Right. Um, Well, I think uh, another thing with Leftow, I I believe, again, Dr. Leftow, if you want to come on, please do. he did turn me down like a, a year ago or whatever. So this is as your fault. Now I get to misrepresent you. Well, that was, uh, your, you know, probably that was early in the podcast. <laughs> that's so. right. Right. Now I'm somebody. Um, so, so he says that they're mental events and they're concrete um, be, because they're causal, uh, but they're, and they're concrete because they're uninstantiable. And when he said that, I was like, well, aren't these supposed to be <laughs> multiply instantiable? Yeah. Like, and they're supposed to be abstract. Like, 
exactly what you said that you're you're starting to like the rungs that i've climbed up to get to where your position is turn out to not they're conceptual rungs and i didn't actually climb up anywhere you conceptually climbed up yeah right there <laughs> yeah. you go <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean like that's also a bit like just for for critical thinking like a general pro tip right like oftentimes um this is a human thing like we use certain arguments to get to certain positions but then like when certain objections afflict those positions we kind of modify or sure. or you know i don't know we make certain tweaks and we adopt certain responses to those objections but sometimes we fail to see that those responses undermine the very reasoning that we took to yeah. take us to that position in the first place right and so um it just it seems to me that uh, some of that is arguably going to be going on going on here. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to look at some of the other because I, I have like four or five responses in my book manuscript to this conceptual existence thing. Um, and I think we've only gone through like three or four of them or, and so on. But uh, anyway, I, that, I think that that's enough. It's yeah. firstly, it's hard to see how they can do the explanatory work. Secondly, even if they have conceptual existence, you seem to still be threatening divine simplicity there yeah. uh, because all the motivations that took someone to adopt the divine simplicity, that whatever is in God is God formula. Um, you're still going to be having these uncaused somehow existent. Maybe they're just conceptually existent, but they're still non-God <laughs> uncaused yeah. things. Uh, that's a big red flag um, and, and so on. And like necessarily existent things that are non-God. Uh, and, and so, yeah, and I think the biggest problem is really just that that metaphysical explanatory thing. Like they, they don't. You're not going to cite God's God's relation to creatures to explain why there are creatures because such relations are not real relations. Right. Um, you need to. Ha they need to really exist in order to be able to metaphysically explain something. Uh, and so, if you're denying real existence of such things, I think it's plausible that um, you're going to face difficulties with their explanatory work, which is precisely what we use to get to realism. Yeah. Right, dude. And I, I think that is a. a I just think it's such a big deal for, for simplicity. Like if you take this argument serious, if you're a divine conceptualist of any stripe, it, you gotta do more work on saying how this does not explode simplicity. Like you, you really, someone needs to write that other, other people I know uh, have said, look, I used to like that argument, but I see that it's messed up simplicity or it does. So I can't use the argument. And I just am on the other side of that where I'm just like, well, no, I, I hold this argument higher in higher regard. So if if you're listening right now, folks, um, do the work and show me. Like I, I would love to see that. I would love to see how we can get around this. I I don't see it right now. And Joe's Joe doesn't. I should either. say, you know, like I'm not the only. Of course, like as you just pointed out, I'm not the only person who has pointed out this um, potential tension. And of course, there are you know things that certain people say. Like I've even heard um, people say that precisely be, like authors in the literature I'm talking about. Um, I've heard them say that because they accept divine simplicity, they do in fact say yeah, there's only one such thought and there's only yeah. one such concept. And yeah, that is God. Um, and I'm just going to be like, well, then good, goodbye realism. I mean, I, I want yeah. to say that the number one exists and so does the triangle that exists. And so does the Pythagorean theorem. And so does this other proposition uh, and so on. <laughs> and, and if anything is distinct from one another, <laughs> these things are distinct from one another. Um, yeah. You know, so, and, and you know, they have to be distinct from one another in order to play the particular explanatory role. Well, anyway, well, and that, and that really is the problem, right? Because that, that is how we got, that's the rungs. Those are the rungs of the ladder that we climbed up. So they really do need to play that role. And you can't, once we get to the end, you can't pull the wool out 
from under the the rug out from underneath us and say, surprise, surprise, this whole time the number uh, one is just the number two, and like, which is the universal humanity, which right. is the Pythagorean theorem, which right. is the proposition that I exist, which is the proposition that one plus one equals two. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what? Yeah. Uh, if, if, if someone is false, that's false. There, the the uh, the one thing I can think of right now is just like light in the prism. It's you know it's on everyone's cover and everything. The it turns out that like the like blue and white and all those things are are in the white are blue and red and green and everything is is in the color white. But that's not. I mean, that's an analogy. It's not. Yeah, yeah it's not. I, I still think there's that fundamental dilemma. Are there such things uh, and are they distinct? Like we just yeah. have to ask those two things. If you want realism, yeah, there there are going to have to be such things. Um, yeah, that is what realism is. Um, <laughs> To say that there are no such things, they really are there. Um, yeah. That's what the realism portion is. That's what we argued to at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of granting that. Uh, we're setting aside the, the nominalists because yeah. there are uh, p- uh, apparently insuperable objections to them. And so once we do that, then we have to ask, are they distinct from one another? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they are. Um, yeah. So like that, that's the problem. Um, and and yeah, I mean, some people try to have their cake and eat it too. So Alexander Proust in his book, it actually might be behind me. No, I, I took it to college and it stayed it's still there because I, I really like the book. Um, it's the book Actuality, Possibility, and Worlds. Uh, I yeah. really enjoy it. I love that book so much. Uh, he convinced me to uh, at least you know, lean towards a uh, causal powers view of modality. So, okay, nice. Um, yeah, along with like Oppie and Malpass and Josh Raffleson's sympathetic to it and Rob Coons. And, anyway, it's yeah. kind of the fad nowadays. <laughs> That's now. right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all super smart. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So good company. But, um, but anyway, yeah, that book, he tries to do a marriage between uh, – I'm not down with his marriage. Uh, he tries to do a marriage – between. so I object. Um, he tries to do a marriage, <laughs> a marriage between um, Aristotelian powers view of modality and a kind of Leibnizian divine conceptualist view. Yeah. And uh, so he says that, like, possible worlds are, like, maximal consistent or perhaps maximal compossible collections of ideas in the mind of God or something along mm-hmm. those lines. Um, and, of course, Proust in that book, he's like – well, crap, I, I accept divine simplicity, and uh, there's more than one possible world. <laughs> I just spit on myself. There is more <laughs> than one possible world, right? Yeah. And so there, there are going to have to be more than one such collection of possible consistent ideas in the mind of God. How, how am I going to score that with my divine simplicity? And uh, at least by my lights, he seems to be trying to have his cake and eat it too, because what does he go on to say? He goes on to say that, uh, oh, these these things are not fundamental uh yeah they're there yeah but they're non-fundamental they're more they're grounded in the more fundamental and simple and unified reality of god or you know something along those lines and yeah. i'm like dude I mean, come on like you just denied the claim that whatever is in god is god i don't care if they're non-fundamental they're there okay yeah. no one cares if they're non-fundamental <laughs> well i mean i think that really arguably um I mean, this is what the, the non-classical theists have urged us all along. You don't need divine simplicity. You could just say that there's one fundamental thing, God, and God grounds God's various aspects or whatever, or his parts, sure. quote-unquote parts. So, yeah. like, anyway, uh, what, yeah, again, what he tries to do um, is just say that, hey, they're not fundamental. And I'm like, that doesn't matter. What matters is that they're there, okay? You have yeah. things that are intrinsic to God, distinct from God. That's what's the problem, not whether or not there are fundamental things intrinsic to God, distinct from God. So, like... It seems to me that he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. And um, anyway, uh, you'll yeah, yeah. Well, I had a, I had a similar experience because I I got it secondhand in the uh, TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology. I I can't remember her name right now, but some this uh, w- one of the contributors she wrote about Is it uh, divine color. Con- 
No, she was that. She's in the other one. She's in planning his book. She's um, in two thousand or so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't. Yeah, it's not planning, but yeah, about um, it's way over there, dude. I can't grab it. But I'm I'm sorry. I wish I could give her a shout out. But yeah, she kind of quotes it. She she did. She should come on. But she like chopped away at a lot of my my friends and heroes in a really quick way. And then she she brought out Bruce's, but I think she brought it from one of his his blog posts. And it was just like, man, I don't get what's going on here. I don't see this. Um. But but also she wanted to hold on to you know simplicity and stuff as well. So it's a tricky one. I want to see it. I would love to see someone do like a super good job. Uh, if it's gonna be like super good, maybe maybe Bruce can do it again. That dude's scary smart, super super smart. Um, but as it stands, man, yeah, I I, I don't quite see it. Um, but I want to I want to move on to Anderson and Welty stuff. Um, and and Malpass's paper. This so symmetry breaking is uh, something I I learned from you. I heard that word first from you uh, in in terms of uh, ontological arguments. But there's this fun symmetry breaker problem here between the Platonist and the Divine Conceptualist. The conceptualist wants to say, the Divine Conceptualist wants to say, hey, look, we have parsimony because you guys have this whole other ontological category of propositions, but we just make those into thoughts and. We already have thoughts in our ontology, so here we are. Like, we're one thing less, and so then by the rules of parsimony, which are king today in philosophy, everyone talks about, well, it's ontologically parsimonious. Um, then we win. So uh, I've heard you talk about this in Malpass as well. You guys say, well, no, you, there's still three types of thing, things. For for Frigga, um, he's got physical things, he's got thoughts, and he's got propositions. But Welty and Anderson have physical things, shareable thoughts, which function as propositions, and then uh, contingent or uh, private, private's better, private thoughts. Right. So there's still three things, and so there's no symmetry breaker here. Is that, is that, uh, does that sound right? Is that a good summary? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely the way that Alex Malpass responds to that, and I find his response plausible. I mean, it's, what makes things difficult here is that it's hard to carve up categories of things. It's yeah, hard to carve really up is. kinds of things. Um, like, are you introducing a new kind of like uncaused thoughts versus caused thoughts? Because I, I know in um, Welty's in, incarnation, the thoughts themselves, I believe, are are not caused by God. They right. exist in God. So like our thoughts are uniformly caused. So you're introducing yet another uh, category. You've got uncaused thoughts and we have caused thoughts down here. Yeah. We also have limited and, and contingent thoughts and we got necessary thoughts over here. And like um, – yeah, so I mean, maybe temporal and atemporal thoughts. If you want to be a divine timeless theorist, and sure. so on. So it's like, how are we carving? Uh, that's one difficulty here. Just with, yeah. uh, I guess, both both the anyone who's trying to appeal to the kind of qualitative or categorical simplicity here, which is what Anderson and Wealthy want to try to do, is that um, how are we demarcating these categories, these fundamental ontological categories? I mean, that's that's one difficulty. Um, well, and, Joe, Joe, real quick, what if someone were just to say, "Hey, look, we have." The divine conceptualist has thoughts, and and if we want to follow Frigga, um, because yeah, dude, carving up reality as joints is really hard. But whatever, we have we have physical things, and then we have thoughts, and thoughts can be thoughts are a broader category that can include necessary thoughts, shareable, private. What why why is that not like a inappropriate move? And then saying, look, we since we have these two categories, one can be subdivided a ton but uh still just two and and the platonist has three well i'm I'm sure there's something wrong with that move but yeah i guess i don't i don't quite quite see that the the force of that move right so suppose that i posit something that's 
that seems to be entirely categorically different from everything else we believe in. Maybe it's like a, I don't know, um, like a non-spatio-temporal, uh, I don't even know. But suppose, let's just call this thing Bob, right? So I'm pausing Bob. This is, it seems to be in a completely fundamentally different category. But like, then I say, oh, hold on a second. There's this higher order category in which both Bob and all the other things that you guys, non-Bob mm-hmm. believers, countenance. And um, yeah, that's a perfectly kosher single category. And so we both just have the single category. I just subdivide it and I, I have some further subdivisions. Okay. Yeah. Um, so like that, that's not going to help, right? You're adding these, I don't know, th- these further subdivisions which, are, which aren't reducible to like the broader single category or the other categories. So you've still got these subdivided categories which yeah. are irreducible fundamental categories. It doesn't mm. matter if you can kind of locate it within some other higher higher order category that maybe we both countenance or that, you know, uh, I don't know. I just, I think that it's the the mere fact of having a, a kind of primitive or perhaps um, irreducible or fundamental category, whether or not it's a subcategory of um, of one that you're already having in your ontology. The, the point is, is that you're, you're yeah. bringing in the new ones, right? You're bringing yeah. in the uncaused thoughts, even though, yes, you have the category of thoughts and that that's, you know, that's fine. But the worrisome addition is this new category of thought. It, it doesn't quite matter if it's subdivided under one other thing in your ontology. What matters is that it's a fundamental irreducible kind that you're introducing. Yeah. So that's what it seems to me. Well, so what if we did that with persons and we said, um, you know, God's a person and we're persons. Would would that would that be too much of a stretch as well to sit because you say, well, you know, typically most people think unless you're Swinburne that God's a necessary being or, you know, so there, you have necessary persons. Is it the same kind of thing where we say, no, you you don't get to sneak God into the category of persons if you weren't if you're covering up the joints? Well, you do get to you do get to have them in that category. It's just okay. For when we're counting up parsimony, when we're counting up qualitative and, and categorical parsimony, it seems to me that um, what we need to be counting is like the fundamental, irreducible kinds of things of your ontology. And so, whether or not there's this category that you're placing within an already existent category, and both of our ontologies say the fact is that you're bringing in still further subdivisions, which are which themselves correspond to uh, unanal unanalyzable, irreducible, fundamental categories themselves, even though they're yeah. subcategories of something we already countenance. So it's fine. Yeah, it, I think it's perfectly fine to like include it under the subcategory of thoughts. But yeah. the worrisome, the worrisome, what's worrisome for the parsimony consideration is that you're further subdividing it with more fundamental categories and so yeah. on. That seems to me to be what's, what's, um, what's problematic. And I mean, for yeah. me, right, for me, yeah. um, I didn't take in my chapter Malpass's route. I mean, I did quote it and I didn't challenge it because I, I do think it's plausible. Sure. What I said is like, okay, fine. Yeah. Platonism does by dint of its non-spatial temporal abstracta, it does have a, like a sui generis uh, irreducible or fundamental kind of object in its ontology, but Platonism doesn't or doesn't automatically have a sui generis fundamental kind of object of a different sort, namely God, right? God. The yeah. thesis conceptualist has an unlimited necessarily existent, like probably timeless, uh, perfect supernatural being that's a pretty big honker in your ontology (laughs) right yeah and that brings in loads of uh, primitive vocabulary that you need to describe it loads of um, primitive principles you have to talk about the relationship between this thing and the world and the relationship between this thing and all of its thoughts and so on it 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 raises lots of parsimony challenges that the platonist doesn't have the platonist yeah the platonist does have the sui sui generis extra fundamental kind but by the same token uh, the theistic conceptualist has this is positing this sui generis fundamental kind of thing, namely God, uh, supernatural falls into these a whole host of new supernatural new kinds of things like supernatural, necessarily unlimited, and so on. So yeah, um, 
that that's what struck me as implausible uh, about their appeal to parsimony. I'm like, there seems to be a parody here. There seems to be yeah. an equality. I don't know. Um, again, it depends on how you count up the kinds, but like, it's no mark against Platonism that they are positing this sui generis fundamental kind of thing when the theistic conceptuals are doing that with God as well. Yeah. So, okay. So putting on my conceptualist hat, um, what if, what if they were to say, well, uh, there's an inherent certeris paribus clause in simplicity charges, which everyone forgets today. And, uh, the positing God, even though he is a unique ontological kind can, can explain or ground this whole category of sui generis on Platonist view, ontological kinds, which unlimited number of propositions. But if you, eh, but if you can ground them in one thing, then uh, you'd have like a qualitative, you'd have a qualitative parsimony instead of quantitative. And I'm using those words pretty loosely because I'm that's part of my homework. I'm supposed to look up what those mean, so I'm using them without totally knowing. Uh, yeah, so well, I can I can just briefly say here, so like quantitative parsimony is just going to be like counting up the number of entities right. in, in your ontology, whereas qualitative or categorical parsimony, as I take it, <laughs> there's, yeah, yeah. there's controversy even how to like cast these things. But like right. as I take it, it's the, the number of fundamental kinds in your ontology, like fundamental right. in the sense of um, not reducible to other kinds. So it's like right. you have to you're gonna have to like bite the bullet and say that yeah there is this fundamental irreducible kind of thing it's a, as right. anderson welty put it a sui generis kind um, right so, so so in that so uh if if the though there is this brand new crazy thing which is a which is god though if if all the propositions are actually his thoughts and can be grounded in him could couldn't the conceptual say well look yeah it's a crazy new category but it is it's qualitatively parsimonious uh if you are a some sort of uh, modified theistic activist, then then God created them. Welty would still be on maybe on the hook because they're uncreated. Yeah, well, <clears throat> see what I'm thinking. Here's the dialectic, right? So Anderson and Welty say, "Hey, the Platonists are positing this sui generis fundamental kind of object, um, these non-spatiotemporal Platonic abstracta, right?" And yeah. so they've got they've got the the spatiotemporal realm of physical things and so on but they've also got this non-spatiotemporal realm of necessarily existent abstracta and all else being equal we should prefer anderson welty's view because they only have um they only have thoughts in the physical thing i mean they have god's thoughts yes yeah. but they also have thoughts in the physical world the platonist has thoughts the physical world and the abstracta in the plato's heaven as it were um now what i want to say there is like well no you don't get to say that you only have thoughts because you also have God as a completely different fundamental kind of thing that the Platonist doesn't have, right? So, yeah, in some sense, there's a simplicity because there's a qualitative simplicity because you don't also, in addition to God, have all the Platonic ab abstracta because you kind of locate them within God and use yeah. the resources of your theistic theory. But that's not the point. The point is that you have God in there as this fundamentally different kind of thing that the Platonist doesn't necessarily automatically have to have. Right. So, like, that's where the parody is. That's where the symmetry okay. is. Um both of them seem to have this kind of, uh, there's a kind of realm of imminence and a realm of transcendence. There's mm -hmm. two categories, as it were. There's the realm of imminence, which is the spatiotemporal things that we knock up against in our everyday lives, both thoughts and physical things and so on. And then there's a the realm of transcendence, which is the necessarily existent um, non-spatiotemporal platonic abstracta in the case of the Platonist. And in the case of the theistic conceptualist, it's the necessarily existent unlimited supernatural god uh, and so on. So, like, there seems to me to be a kind of, I don't know, a parody there, um, yeah. a, a parody with a T, a, a symmetry there with respect to at least qualitative 
qualitative parsimony. Now, in terms of quantitative parsimony, I actually think the, the Platonist view is probably simpler. Um, hmm. Because for every abstract object the Platonist countenances, the divine conceptual says, yeah, there is that abstract object, but also that plus abstract one. object, yeah, plus one, God, yeah, it's in God's one. mind. So like uh, qu- quantitative parsimony seems to me favors the Platonist. I think there's a, I think they're a wash, they're tied on qualitative parsimony. So it's like, well, so it, with with qualitative parsimony, if if the conceptual said you have an unlimited number of ungrounded things, if we're just limiting ourselves to propositions, if there's an infinite number of those, whereas on theism, you have the, all those are grounded. Yeah, there, so there's one. There's one ungrounded. Power. Yeah. Yeah. So I take it. I take this to be an element of explanatory power, not simplicity. Okay. So. At least as for how we were focusing on it just there, gotcha. we were focusing on simplicity. And okay. that might, what you give there might just be an element of explanatory power or maybe unification, but unification sure. itself might be part of, of explanatory power and breadth and depth and so on. But, yeah. um, it, you know, it depends on how you divvy those up. But I think that's a, that's a, that's a potentially good move, right? Um, none of them are ungrounded for the theistic conceptualist, but it seems like maybe all of them or maybe a lot of them are ungrounded for the Platonist. Now, how I would potentially push back on that is that um it's not clear to me that well so firstly not all of them are going to be ungrounded on the platonist scheme so the platonist is going to want to say that definitely there well i think i think a platonist should say this Uh, there are definitely going to be grounding relations between these sorts of things like the axioms of piano arithmetic you get the successor function and so on Um, from those you kind of get all the natural numbers for free you kind of generate them in this kind of iterative hierarchy as it were so they're all grounded in some more fundamental single um some pretty limited set of of postulates and so on um and like to me right to me it seems like you're also going to have to have that i don't know on on the, the the theistic view like um you you also have those axioms of piano arithmetic, and you have these same explanatory relations obtaining among the the abstract objects within God's mind, and then it's yeah you go on to say further that those more fundamental principles are grounded in God, but it's like how how does that grounding go? Like you you, yeah. you can't just say God exists and then therefore get as some kind of entailment the axioms of piano arithmetic or something. Like I want some kind of illuminating account there. How does God? Well, there's a really- there's an insuperable uh, argument some some <laughs> against the exactly. Platonist. So, yeah. <laughs> but like yeah, exactly. My worry is like you can this. I actually have this worry for um, things like the moral argument and so on. Okay. But like sometimes there's a tendency for some theists to just slap a label on the god no you're ab- you're absolutely right they you're slap absolutely a label right. on the god grounds x and i'm like yeah and that concept does all fills in all the blanks for you and explains everything because yeah. because god well, of course well, naturally god and i'm i'm uh i'm a little sympathetic to it i get why you do it but I, personally reading you know philosophy of religion for for years it's like well I'd, i would like to know how you're doing that though yeah i want to i want the explanatory stories give yeah. me an account of how somehow god is getting us to these what the platonist takes to be the fundamental let's say there are like let's just suppose that there are four fundamental postulates of piano arithmetic and from those we get all the natural numbers grounded yeah, and so on sure. free. show me i i want the class if the the theistic conceptualist says that in there's some more fundamental explanation for those piano or four basic fundamental piano arithmetic axioms I don't know. Show me what's this explanation. You can't just slap a label and say God grounds it, right? Yeah. It's like in the case of morality. It's like oftentimes in in the moral argument debate, the theist just uh, slaps a label and says, "Oh, God grounds that." I'm yeah. like, oh, "Well, how?" Well, it's like, "Oh, well, it's nature." I'm like, "How does this nature like? Give me some kind of account. Give me some kind of story here that illuminates the phenomenon in question." Yeah. Oftentimes, I'm not. Uh, some people, some people do give such an account, but 
oftentimes it's just it stops at that it stops at no right. god grounds it it's just, i call it label slapping they're just slapping the label uh, yeah. god grounds this um and like i grant that yes grounding relations are are you know if you can if you can have more in your ontology and so on and have uh fewer fundamental things i think that's a good thing right. but you can't just go around slapping these labels on everything otherwise yeah. you know i could come up with some kind of single platonic object and i just slap on it oh well, it grounds all the other ones yeah <laughs> right so like right. Uh, i need to get some kind of i need some independent grasp of how i need some kind of account some kind of story as to how god grounds these things that the platonist would say are fundamental um and i, I don't know I, I don't i'm skeptical that people have done that uh, thus far in the literature i'm not aware of it there might be some but like how yeah. does god get <laughs> how do you go from god or like bare theism to like these fundamental axioms of piano arithmetic or so on. Like it's difficult for me to, to see that. Um, I hear you. uh, And I I think, I think something that that's been, uh, I don't know if it's as frustrating, but a little bit frustrating is the move towards just abductive and surprise and in, you know, IBE like, well, it's for the moral argument. We don't have to explain, I, I don't know the full story, but it's less surprising over on this side that we have these moral truths. And you go, well, yeah, okay, yeah. But like, I'm say I'm with you. Now, how do I understand that relation more? Like, even I'm not surprised anymore. This is cool, <laughs> but but I still want to know. And and so that that has been something I think. I don't want to say it's intellectually lazy. I, I think it's probably a, a good move and stuff like that. But I'm I'm left thinking like like you said, like we still need to know. And especially if we're going to be truth seekers and we're going to be trying to figure all this stuff out, we still got to know, like, what is that relation? And okay, so I'm not surprised, but that's, that's cool. I'm glad, I'm glad it does a lot of work, but we still need more. So mm-hmm. I'm with you. The, the, I think wealthy being a realist would say, well, they're just un they're uncaused, but they're still grounded in that they are thoughts and following planning, a, um, thoughts belong, thoughts go with thinkers, whatever, that means and so we still have i I know what it means sorry i don't want to like belittle or anything but um thoughts go with thinkers so they're not free-floating thoughts flying around like a a proposition might be um they just go with thinkers like what do you make of that of that move of saying like they're grounded in that uh the these four okay so these four um propositions of piano arithmetic God didn't invent them. They're basic, whatever. Um, but they have always inhered in his mind. Uh, is that, is that a grounding relationship? Is that, is that, uh, still, they're still ungrounded just as they would be on Platonism. So we still have symmetry or symmetry plus one because we have God too. Well, I mean, we could distinguish, we can distinguish between grounding, uh, grounding the entities versus grounding the character of the entities right so i i grant or at least i think there's an analog that yeah okay in some sense thoughts are non-fundamental and under this you know under under the way that anderson and welty are thinking about it thoughts are less fundamental than and and derivative from their more fundamental minds that kind of harbor them as it were yeah so I, i can kind of see that as an explanatory story okay all that's getting me though is a ground it seems to me of like the fact that these axioms of piano arithmetic, like 
It's the fact that they're their thoughts, which is being explained here. Right. Not the fact that it's these axioms in particular, like with the content, they're their character. Sure. Like why right, is right. it why is it this successor function the way it is and so on? That just seems to have to be a primitive. That's not yeah. gonna be able to be grounded in God, God's mind. I mean, you could slap the label on it, but then I want an account. I want a story. So it's right. like, yeah, I agree with you that um there's some sentiments, yeah, thoughts naturally go with minds. And even if we can't spell out all the precise details there, um, yeah, there's still some kind of plausible uh, grounding relation um, between thoughts and their thinkers. But it's like, I want to know about, like, the content there. Like, why is it yeah. these axioms of piano arithmetic, like, how does that, how, how do you give an explanatory account of that? Yeah. It's, it's that that seems to be the, the um, it's that that, that um, the, the, what's it called, the theistic conceptualist, is going to seem to me to have to just be take as primitive, but that's precisely yeah. what like um, the, the Platonist is doing. Now, I guess the Platonist doesn't have the existence of those uh, entities grounded, whereas their existence is grounded. So like we distinguish between the existence and the character, both of them have the primitive character, um, both the theistic conceptualist and the Platonist yeah. have their, their character being primitive. But I guess uh, what I said there implies that um, the theistic conceptualist does have a, a kind of grounding for for their existence yeah. um but what i'm wondering is like i agree yeah oh no this is so you can kind of give a nondescript way like oh yeah thoughts are grounded in thinkers but it's like why are there even these thoughts that that have this character like yeah i i agree that yeah so like even even sorry I'm thinking out loud as you can tell. No, this is like, so this is why I love it. Dude. This is so good because we're both yeah, at right. the edge of our thinking and we're right. thinking out loud. We're philosophizing live right. right here. That's right. <laughs> so, well, and you can't you can't give just the modal the the possible world uh, account and say well they they just are this way because they're that way in every possible world and it's like well that's what why though yeah you I don't know, like we that. still want to say more about that like like Lewis wasn't right on this stuff like yeah, you still grounding, have to give an account. Yeah, grounding, it's, there's also some sense in which, um, like, one thing is, like, metaphysically due to or owed to another. And so there's a kind of, I don't know, there's a kind of explanatoriness there that, that's not captured solely in terms of, of modality. So I well, agree with you there. Well, Joe, did you come up, I, I'm showing my uh, limited uh, scope of, of reading here, but did you come up with the existence first character grounding? Because that is, like, that distinction is so unbelievably helpful for these conversations i don't think i no i, I don't think so okay. i mean I've, I've heard that that language used i mean i i certainly have not seen this used in the theistic conceptualism debate stuff this uh, is huge I, that's so unbelievably helpful dude because that's what a lot of people are arguing for the existence and they're saying god's mind is the grounding of the existence of these propositions and then others like if, if you're a theist if you're a theistic activist then you owe us a story for the grounding of the character if uh if you're a if you're a uh theistic conceptual realist like Welty or Anderson, well, you're a little bit of like a ostrich platonist a little bit and saying they just are that way, dude, and the buck's gotta stop somewhere. Yeah. But I still have the grounding of the existence. And it's like, well, okay, that's that's cool. And I actually like that. I actually think that's super duper powerful. But yeah, like I mean, what you're pressing is the character, and I think that's still really important. Yeah. And I mean I mean, I, I've started to, to even second guess myself on on the existence one. So it's like, I, I I grant that if we if we say that there are these axioms of piano arithmetic and their thoughts, mm -hmm. yes, then we can then we can ground their existence um, in in God. But it's like, how did you get to their their being these things in the first place? Right? You can't yeah. go merely from God and God's a mind. You can't go from that 
just saying that there exists even even the existence not just the character but the existence of um there being such axioms of piano arithmetic whatever their character happens to be there there doesn't seem to be any obvious entailment relation there so i still want an explanatory story yeah. it's not enough to say that god is in mind um because that alone is not going to get you to these things yes yeah. i agree with the theistic conceptualist that like hey if you have these things and if they're thoughts then you'll be able to gr- uh, ground their existence in there but I want to know how you have those things in the first place. How, how are they yeah. even there? So I'm actually second guessing what I said earlier. I think that arguably even an existential grounding, um, it, it, it's not clear to me that the theistic conceptualist has an advantage over the Platonist when it comes to their existential grounding. I still don't know how to go from God to there even being the axioms of piano arithmetic in the first place. That, that, that seems to be something primitive. Now I grant that, um, yeah, once you have their existence, then you can go on to say, okay, well, yeah, their thoughts and those depend on, on thinkers, but it's like, right. I still don't know how you got to their existence in the first place. And that is the kind of um, the existence grounding that, that I'm worried about. Now, there is some kind of distinction that I, I'd like to draw out here because yeah. um, it's interesting because there are actually potentially what we've kind of uncovered here. There might be different kinds of uh, existential grounding. So we have character grounding, we have existential grounding, yeah. but one of them is like um, your theory makes it difficult to see how you could have such things in the first place. But if you pre give their existence, then you kind of have like a story to tell about how they're grounded in your fundamental thing, you know, right. um, because they'd be thoughts. So there's a kind of distinction between like, how do you have the things in the first place? That kind of, I guess, primordial existential grounding. And then secondly, there's a Just kind kidding. of derivative existential grounding where once you have settled the question, even if it's just brute, even if you settle the question of their primordial grounding, um, they're primordially ungrounded. Then you can go on to give a story as to how they, um, like, once you grant them, then you say that they're thoughts, and thoughts are dependent on minds. So, well, so Joe, what if we, your your, the the piano arithmetic is so good. Um, it's such a good example because it presses the case. But what about what about like the law of non contradiction? Well, okay, one thing. One before yeah. you go on, before yeah, yeah, you go please. on, and I will turn it over to you. There are going to be some math nerds in the audience. <laughs> and they're going to be like, they didn't characterize this correctly. Yeah, but there are some this, math nerds of, that listen. This for is sure an example, action. okay? This is an this is an illustrative example. Even if the even if the details that we've gotten are wrong, all we need is some kind of um, example where we have certain foundational, perhaps principles or axioms um, that exist and that are taken as primitive, and that um, somehow ground a kind of infinite iterative hierarchy based on such principles. That's all that we need. Uh, piano arithmetic again, like people don't don't get get mad at us if we got the, the details right. wrong. We <laughs> right. might have. We might have gotten it right as well. I mean, you know, I, I I know that there are certain axioms and you can get the numbers for free from from certain of these when you have the successor function and so on. You have certain definitions. But anyway, <laughs> I just yeah. wanted to forestall the, the, yeah, the really angry, the angry math that. nerd. Well, actually... <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, some of my, like, my favorite fans are, they've got their master's in, in mathematics and I'm still waiting for them to teach me, but they're probably in the in the comments right now. Um, okay, so Joe, let's if we limit it to uh, the law of non-contradiction and we say that is a proposition necessarily true proposition um so the the brentano problem is really interesting i want to talk about that and a possible solution but i'm going to jump ahead and say if let's say the the law of non-contradiction is a necessarily true proposition anderson welty you're going to say that's a, a divine thought um so that would be uh it's existential grounding uh, primordial and, or <laughs> no, yeah it's, right it's, no it's that's gonna be, it's going to be derivative existential grounding the, the way that i characterize it right we have primordial why is there such a thing in the first place and then the the derivative existential grounding is okay once we 
pre once we have the thing pre-given, we find that it has some character. Yeah. And in 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 the case of theistic conceptualism, it has the character of being a thought. And then yeah. we can see how that can kind of fit within being grounded in or derived from other things that are already in your ontology. Yeah. So we have the primordial existential and then the derivative existential. So I think the, I think the primordial existential and the the um, character grounding can. If we wanted to go with a truth maker theory and say the law of non-contradiction is a true thought about all of God's other thoughts, and if we write so such that no thought can both be and not be true, or in the you know however we parse that, right? Have you um, met J.C. Beale? No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Here he comes. Uh, okay, so he's everywhere that's and right. nowhere. <laughs> that's right. Printful ex- of explosions out, so anything follows. Um, doesn't matter. So. Okay, so um, the law of non-contradiction, what, what's the truth maker for this truth bearer? Well, let's just say the divine nature. Uh, God can't contradict himself. And so, ooh, no good, no good? <laughs> no, is go that, on, is, go is on. that slapping? Oh, so so if, if the divine nature is such that— It sounds that, like slapping to me. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, help me, help, me, help me think through. I don't want to slap. Um, the divine nature— <clears throat> Why? Why? Why can't the divine nature, you know, contradict itself? Because well, the law of non-contradiction. Well, I don't know. Oh uh, no, have... no. So I want to, I want to have the grounding the other ways because the law of non-contradiction is about other, other thoughts. None of his thoughts can contradict each other. If thoughts are playing the same role as propositions, right? No proposition can both be and not be in the same way in the same right. It can't both be and not be about something or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well. And okay. but then you could parse if you were uh, if you wanted to say propositions are complex. This is what I really wanted to ask you about. I'm throwing a lot at you right now, but if so, Margolis and whoever else wrote the SCP article on concepts. There's like in in that literature, they all say concepts are the building blocks of thoughts, and I'm like, all right, well, I'll just grab that. If that's the case, uh, then God's thoughts, the thought about the thought. P, not P and not P. That thought is about the, the divine concepts of negation and P or, you know, thoughts, uh, not both being and not being in the same way in the same manner. So then we could give an account for the intentionality of God's thoughts. They're about his concepts and it's structured. So propositions are structured and they're arranged a certain way because God's the arranger of his thoughts. So then we don't have this problem of why um, we don't have the primordial problem, which we might have if we're Platonist for why is it that this proposition is structured the way it is? If, if you're a structured theorist or if you're not and they're just primitive, then why is Tibbles on the mat? Why is it not mat on Tibbles or something? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah I kind of like structured account. I mean, I kind of like Josh Rasmussen's account to be honest. Yeah. Well, so I just grabbed Josh's account in my paper and I just, just filled in the blanks with, divine thoughts so um i like that you like josh's account that's really good and i wanted to see if that works for divine thoughts so a proposition on josh's account is is about these concepts which are uh oh, sorry uh, about properties which are necessarily unique to the things that they're about and so if properties are divine concepts then we could just analyze this this way and explain intentionality of divine thoughts we can go one step further than the Platonist in accounting for the intentionality of propositions or things that function as propositions. What do you What do you think about? Is that 
So firstly, I like that move. I think it's interesting because, okay. um, well, I like it because in the discussion between uh, Anderson and yeah. uh, uh, um, Alex, it seemed to me that, well, I don't know, um, Anderson either wanted to say that uh, these thoughts aren't about anything or... Yeah, that's what he something, said. Yeah, something like that. And that struck me as... <laughs> that struck me as a huge no-no. So it, it, I'll put a pin sounds... in that because I want to. I want to ask you more about that too. But okay. but yes, I, I get you, and that's like that's why I wanted to go this way because it, I also felt like that was weird. And we talked about it on Facebook, yeah, uh, chat yeah. or whatever. And, and I, I think the reason why it's weird is because it's ladder kicking. It's it's the same ladder kicking that we saw earlier. Like um, it's the intentionality of these things that was supposed to be. It's the intentionality of God's thoughts, which was supposed to be what's accounting for the intentionality of propositions. But then when you identify them, he goes on to say, oh, wait, well, it's not actually about anything after all. So uh, anyway, set that aside. Set that aside. Yeah, yeah. I want to come back. Yeah. Um, well, oh, crap. I was just about to say something about... Um, Rasmussen, concepts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, your, your proposal, your proposal. So, okay. I hate to say it, but there does still seem to be a parody or a symmetry between them because, like, um, you are explaining... You, you say that God's um, thoughts, which are the propositions... These are about something, and we can explain that, right? It's not primitive. It's it's essentially the same structure as Josh's explanation yeah. of the um, intentionality of Platonic abstract propositions, mm-hmm. and it's in terms of an uh, an organization or a structure. But right, but the thing is, um, how do we have the things within that structure being intentional, right? So Josh, what he does is he just says that okay. It, 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 it's sort of primitive in some sense, right? The properties are necessarily unique to the things. Right. And Tibbles has, of, yeah, this yeah, property. The property and, being Tibbles right. and the property being the mat and so on. And so he kind of secures the intentionality there. And yeah. it, that's a kind of primitive thing, right? We might wonder like, why is it about that? Right. Like um, why is, is a property that's necessarily unique to Tibbles? Why would that ground the intentionality being about Tibbles? Like, I don't know. You might wonder about that. Um, but I think that ultimately that wonderment is probably going to have to bottom out in a kind of primitive intentionality. Like, yeah, okay, that's the end of my story. It's the but, end of my story. To, but yeah. like that, that, it's the end of Josh's story that um, this necessarily unique relation uh, is is tied to intentionality in the way that it is. Yes. But that seems to be what you're going to have to say. Like, why is God's concept yeah. like in virtue of what is that intentional? Yeah. Right. And, and well, like, so, so Joe, so I think if um, I think you're right here, but I think if we're, I think the explanatory power might be on the side of concepts because it seems like, well, concepts are about things. Are, are properties, do properties have intentionality? Is, is triangle about triangle things? Maybe it, maybe we say it is, right? But Well, this actually comes into one of my objections to like the okay. theistic conceptualism. It's like I, um, concepts are about things, but properties aren't about things therefore properties aren't uh, right so it's um, a latter thing again we started off thinking that properties are not intentional but now once we're once we're to divine concepts you want to say properties are intentional dude so surprise surprise yeah like i mean when i think about the property of redness that doesn't seem to be about it how is it how would it be about redness yeah. I mean, it is redness <laughs> right is it about all the red things well no because there might not have been any red things and yeah. like well so I don't know, like, so, well, so redness so, seems to be, it doesn't seem to be intentional, uh, yeah. but concepts, a concept is always a concept of something. It's intentional. Yeah. It's directed toward its conceptual content, right? Um, and so it seems to me that it's just fundamentally misguided to identify concepts 
with properties, which is what mm. the thesis conceptualist seems to do. So I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing Anderson Wealthy have something to say about that. But um, well, they don't. They don't make this be. move. They, I, I think that they um, they don't make this move. Paul Gould doesn't make this move because he wants to say um, propositions are primitive. Um, so I, I, Davis Davis makes this move in a co-authored with with uh, Gould in uh, Beyond the Control of God, and Morris Menzel. I think they they also make this move. So if we were to say that, okay, this, and it's uh, the whole time I'm running into like, well, that's ad hoc, dude. Nice job. Like, you know, clipping off stuff to fit your thing. But if, if, um, if Frege is right, uh, Frege is right about concepts, then they're like, they are straight up universals. Uh, they're, you know, Fregean senses or whatever. And so then maybe we don't have to worry about this intentionality problem of matching properties with concepts. Um, and then we can say, well, how is it that these concepts give intentionality to the proposition or whatever? And you say, well, that's primitive. It seems to me, well, it could be the arranger. Like if God is the arranger and, and Paul, Paul Gould kind of hit me with this and, and said it was kind of ad, ad hoc, I think. Um, but if, if thoughts are made out of concepts, why is it that this thought now is about Tibbles being on the mat? Because God arranged the concepts which are the constituent pieces or whatever of the thought such that they would represent tibbles being on the mat um i recognize could you, that could you say that again sorry so uh, so so you're gonna need an arranger if propositions are structured they're arranged a certain way on a theistic conceptual um divine conceptualist view god arranged them so like the the proposition Tibbles mat on the isn't intentional. It's not about, it's nonsensical. It doesn't, but if it's arranged about Tibbles being on the mat, now it makes sense. Yes. Okay. And, that, and that's what Josh talks about in the book. Like the, the order matters as yeah. well as the on relation and all that. So I, I agree that, that you want, you have, you have an explanation of the intentionality. So, so yeah, let me say, I agree that you have an explanation of the intentionality. It seems to me of the proposition, because yeah. I think that that's, at least plausible in the case of, of Josh's theory. Um, but like what I'm, I'm worried about is like the intentionality of those concepts. Right. And, and that seems to be, that seems to be primitive and, and like the same. So both the Platonist account and your account bottom in uh, primitive intentionality. It seems. Yeah. Yeah. So if they do, then we, I would want to say, I would want to push and say like, well, even if there, there's symmetry again, maybe the, the explanatory powers on the side of the divine conceptualist, because we have an explanation for the, arrangement of that proposition so god no. did it <laughs> you're slapping the label well <laughs> is that I'm is sorry. that slave? yeah so like why like why I, why is why is god thinking why how do you go from bare theism to that i mean like yeah okay you could say god grounds it but it's like i don't know what why how, how is there this thing there that god I, I don't know. I, I it seems to me to be label slapping again. I mean, it, okay. it, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. I mean, I, I could it, be mistaken. It very, there. very well, maybe. So the the uh, could God not have arranged anything? I mean, it, so like, wait, what? I mean, could God like have refrained from arranging it? Because arranging sounds kind of causal, but I, you might want to say that this is a non-causal ground. No, I I I think that I want to go with a causal route. I okay. think the modified theistic activist account can take us a little bit further here, and so. If we're sticking, this is why this is why I wanted to go with the law of oh, not contradiction. Hold, hold on. Um, yeah. 
so now we're getting into the ward problem. Sorry, I, you know, <laughs> that's Ward, good, dude. He, he points out like um, God doesn't make things up out of you know thin cloth, right? I, I don't yeah. know, like if God is causing these things, well then causally prior to doing them, that would seem to be unintentional actions, you know, because he doesn't he doesn't know what he's doing in advance. He doesn't have the the kind of intentional thoughts and so on. Like the, it, what he's causing is precisely what's supposed to be accounting for the intentionality of his thoughts and so on in the first place. So if causally prior to that, he doesn't have that. It seems as though you are not going to have this being like a knowledge governed causal act and an intentional act. It just um, like Tom Ward. This is what right. Tom you, Ward was saying. Yeah, you can't make. Like, yeah, you can't make stuff up. Make stuff up it out would of be, whole cloth, as it right. were. Um, yeah. That was his objection to Leftow's view, and I'm yeah. wondering if the view that you're sketching here has that worry as well. It could, um, because, uh, well, okay, let me think. So, if we take Josh's view, then Tibbles that concept is about tibbles one tibbles it's not like a multi unless unless the arrangement is what's what's um extending the like extensionality of that is is by being arranged and tensed or whatever right so then it no that's not good um okay i am thinking out loud with you here too uh, yeah I, this is good i mean this is we're like doing like philosophy on the edge of our, the very edge of our <laughs> thinking so this yeah. is all kind of like innovative stuff and like a lot of this stuff is also at the edge of the like the literature right like a lot yeah, of this right. stuff hasn't even been worked out um like fleshed out in a like a fully worked out theistic conceptualist or at modified activist yeah. theory so um for the audience uh, yeah, uh, yeah yeah but like yeah at some point you know some sometimes it just runs through my mind or it's like you know, maybe the nominalists are onto something. <laughs> no, I, dude, I've, I've thought about that too. And I'm, yeah. and, and so has everyone else. All the conceptualists I talk with, they're like, dude, this is tough. Like, yeah, this is hard stuff. They have to, you know, point, we just have so many like working parts in our theory that I'm like, well, crap, man. Nominalists yeah. might be onto something. Uh, yeah. And I, I just, I don't know. I just wanted to say that I had that flash um, again. Yeah. Just a well, moment ago. If, if we go with, if we go with the law of non contradiction, um, we could, I don't want to be exempt. I don't want to be an exemplarist. Like, like, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to do that, but it does. It seems like it does work in the case of non-contradiction. Um, and immediately you go, well, what about a draft then? What about this or that? But if, if, if the, the divine nature is the truth maker for the truth bearer, which is the law of non-contradiction, uh, which functions to that, then we have, uh, a solution to like voluntarism. Could God have made, um, a and not a in the same way in the same time. Well, no, because it would be contradictory to his nature. He doesn't contradict himself. That's what makes that proposition true. So he couldn't have made it otherwise. And then you go, well, it, does that limit his freedom? Well, it only limits it insofar as he's limited by his nature. But then God has a nature, and so we might not go with simplicity and other concerns. Yeah, yeah. Well, this might be a nice way to... to um just uh transition into the uh the, the problem of freedom right uh yeah 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 I, I think this is a good transition so anyway i'll let you ask me what you want if you yeah. just want me to lay it out or, or well, whatever well um i want to do that one too oh, man, oh yeah the so non-valley thoughts yeah well <laughs> i mean listen so i'm really enjoying this conversation let's go yeah. we're at one hour and 30 minutes let's go for another 30 minutes and so, awesome yeah yeah, yeah. so look uh, real quick i just wanted to talk about um the intentionality again so um that i gave following Rasmussen one thing um about uh Welty and Anderson if they want to say that and 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 Gould um propositions are simple and uh they you identify them with divine thoughts uh Malpass has this 
great dilemma for them. But they're okay. But uh, you say what? What? What's what makes these things intentional? What makes these thoughts intentional? What are they about? And Anderson goes, "Well, they're not about anything." And you say, "Then they're not intentional." I wonder that. What about the proposition? What's the proposition about? Yeah, for the Platonist, is it about something like? If it's not about something, but it's still intentional, then can't the divine thought just say the exact same thing, the conceptualist? Okay, so <clears throat> that's a good question. What I t- well, when, when I think of the Platonist, I'm going to be thinking of Josh Rasmussen's Platonic account. And so okay. the proposition is intentional, and it's about something. It's about Tibbles, it's about the mat, and it's about on, and in particular... You know, at a fine-grained analysis, I mean, we can be coarse-grained and fine-grained. Sure. At a fine-grained analysis, it's about tibbles being on the mat, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, we can explain that aboutness in terms of uh, the um, the properties that make up yeah. the uh, in their particular order within the um, organization or the, the structure. Um, and so if that's I, the I case, that. then if that's the case, then you, I think, you have gone a step further than the divine conceptualist who holds uh, to a simple view of propositions. Cause you've given more, a, a further explanation and saying, here's what they're about. Yeah. And uh, I think it's important to see that it's not just a slapping explanation, right? Just slapping. No, I don't think so. Cause I, yeah, I just yeah. use the same thing. Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I think, I mean, you know, Josh get, goes into detail about this and it does see, you know, the kind of organization of properties like that does seem to kind of account for how there's that kind of intentionality. Um, right. Right. Uh, I didn't but know like, you, you wanted to make that move. That's that's awesome. That, I, I did the same thing. That's that's really yeah. But like, if you have a simple view of thoughts, like ah, uh, you seem to be facing this problem, right? No, I, mean, I, I, I think that's right. Because then you have to just say, well, it's brute. And then if the Platonist says it's brute, well, then you go, well, yeah, but thoughts go with thinkers, and you have just and now we're back I'm to the same right, right, yeah. right, right. That's good, man. I'm glad we both went further than the sim- than the simple views. Then that's I like it. It's a tentative. It's yeah, tentative. yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, again, like I'm, I'm not even fully on board with like Platonism about propositions, but sure. um, uh, yeah, I, we're just operating on. Um, again, I, I like to take, I put on a Platonist hat, yeah. because that's what Anderson and Welty and so on are comparing in order to try to differentially support theistic. Well, and, but Joe, that's what that's what makes your stuff so interesting and fun because you don't just go, but I'm a nominalist, so sorry. It's like, well, okay, this wasn't fun anymore. Like. Great. So you had a stalemate right at the beginning, dude. Cool. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. So uh we got some of that. So you got these four problems with theistic uh or four theistic conceptualism. Um, I call the first one body thoughts because it's like the one of the first in the list of Graham Oppies. Um then you uh the second is that uh, theistic conceptualism unduly restricts God's freedom and control. Then there's the bootstrap bootstrapping worry and the last one, uh uh, compossibles and and the problem there, Joe. Are all four of those going to be in the book? Yeah, so I do. I discuss all four of them in the, in the book, and um, you know, I don't defend all four of them. Um, yeah, but I I definitely discuss all four of them. Awesome. So, yeah. Well, um, which one do you think is the hardest or the most uh, insuperable for the <laughs> most insuperable? That sounds like. Because <laughs> now well, we're ordering like our superability. That sounds like being most pregnant. Like I'm the most pregnant out of all of us. Well, no, but I, but there's bigger and smaller uh, uh, infinities in mathematics, right? So that's like, true. so maybe <laughs> that's true. Now we're bringing an infinity into this. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
which is also an interesting, it's interesting to think about how all this relates to the Kalam cosmological argument as well, or at least the, the old Kalam, what I call the old Kalam, because, well, anyway, set that aside. Because yeah. uh, arguably we have actual infinities, uh, but uh, set, set that aside. Um, yeah. Theistic conceptualism. So, yeah, the, the, did you ask me which one is the, the most, okay, the most pregnant yeah. one out of all of them? Um, That's right. It's certainly not the, the body thoughts objection or the ungodly thoughts objection. Yeah. Um, I also don't think it's the counterpossible objection, although I think that one's at least more plausible than the ungodly thoughts objection. Um, and so that leaves the the middle two ones, which was uh, the unduly restricting freedom and bootstrapping. Yeah. Um, honestly, I think those are equally equally challenging. Um, so. Okay. Well, um, let's go with bootstrapping really quick um, because one of my professors and friends, Paul Gould, uh, he he's done work on uh, at Purdue. He's done work on uh, on the bootstrapping up. problem, and, so, and I'm sure you're aware uh, of his response in in the uh, Beyond the Control of God. So, for those who don't know, the the bootstrapping problem is how can God pull himself up by his own bootstraps? Doesn't really make any sense if he has these properties before he if he has the property of being creator before he created. Like, what's the deal with that? Or if he has this property of thinking before he created the property of thinking, it's bootstrapping like what the heck property property being god or being divine or something right right so god has to create his prop his properties um morris and menzel it might just be morris but they they talked about like a 3d printer and it's just like god's been 3d printing his own (laughs) i don't like that i'm like stop like that's what i just say stop like i you know that there's that gif where it's like um uh, I know some people say GIF, but uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a GIF. Anyway, it's a GIF. Anyway, um, there's like a stop sign, and the, guy, the guy's got like a, I don't know if, what it is, like a, a some kind of long stick, and he's just like tapping the stop uh, sign. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, um, yeah. So I don't want to pull out the 3D printer one, but uh, Paul Paul Gould says, um, okay, here's how we do it. God's essential Platonic properties exist, I say, um, and substances are Aristotelian, so divine substance is a fundamental unity. It's the final cause of its constituent metaphysical parts. He goes, he doesn't go for simplicity, says, you know, it's Aristotelian. So he's got uh, non-separable parts, even though he's made of parts. What what do you think? Have you given any thought to this before, Joe? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, one thing is like uh, the standard, what the classical theist is going to want to say in response. It's like, you can't have assay properties. God's not <laughs> supposed to be the only thing that's assay. Yeah, right. Thing that's uncreated. Mm-hmm. You can't have non-God existing things that are uncreated and assay. Yeah. Like, yeah, raise the flags. That's a red flag. Um, yeah, but uh, that's one thing that I want to say. And like, there's some plausibility to that. I don't know. Like, perfect being theism. Um, and what's interesting here, and people, people, uh, people don't theists don't like this. Don't like this argument. Um, but no. like. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting potential new argument for atheism. Basically, mm. you say like either divine simplicity is true or false. That that octane divine simplicity that I was articulating earlier. Um, then you say, well, uh, either way, really, God couldn't like a true God, like a God worth wanting, couldn't exist either way. Because if it's true, well, then you have all these objections to divine simplicity and so on that, that we, even we've been covering here, and yeah. so you face like really significant difficulties. So you don't want to go down that horn. But if you say that it's false, well, then like. I don't know. You're going to be admitting like things that are intrinsic to God, distinct from God. God's, you know, there are going to be non-God things, non-God existing positive ontological items that are asse, that are independent, that are necessarily existent, that are uncreated, and so on. Like if you told that to pe- theists yeah. for like the last couple thousands of years, they would have like screamed. Um, uh, right. Like 
it, well, it, so some some of them some of them do that with with uh, PVI does that with the Platonic Horde. Yeah, and he says yeah, but so this would be different. Uh, and you know, Tom Tom Ward's like, yeah, that's not okay. Like, don't do that. But if if this were the case, then it's still there's nothing outside of of God. It's not like the properties exist outside of him. So there's still <clears throat> uh, existentially grounded in one of those ways in God Himself, right? Yeah, yeah. So there are definitely ways to go about this. One way it is the hold apart grounding, right? You say that yeah. yes, okay, fine. There are necessarily existent things that God didn't didn't create. Um, but hey, they're grounding God, and they're yeah. you know they're intrinsic to God, and God is grounding them. So like, yeah. Um, but a now, lot of, of yeah, the, a lot of theists do not like that. And yeah, yeah, well, one one potential difficulty is like, well, hey, grounding seems to be a, a metaphysical relation, and there's a kind of metaphysical priority and posteriority there. But uh, in that case, well, then surely uh, you know. God would already have to, as it were, be there in order to be able to ground his essential parts. But if he must already yeah. be there, as it were, ontologically prior to grounding them, well, then he must already have his essential properties and so on, because he's already there and you can't exist yeah. without your essential properties. So Unless like, um, he's this th- 3D printer. Now we get yeah, to come exactly. back. <laughs> no. So yeah. like, anyway, a lot of theists. So again, I'm not saying that this is an insuperable argument. No, no. Like, sure. It's one that I might want to like try to write up into an article. At some point. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, but it's like a new argument for atheism, essentially. Like, hey, either... Um, God, if God exists, God would be simple or not. But either way, you have some insuperable difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, but That's but the, so do, anyway, do you know, we need to go you, back to your. Oh yeah, yeah, after you say this, we need to go back to the. Yeah, the do you know that um, that's like a that's like a, a meme online that's like simplicity or atheism? Do you know about this in like classical yeah, theist yeah, circles? I do. I, I think you could call it that. You could name it that. And it would be great. And well, it would be atheism or atheism because. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. All right. So so going back um to the bootstrapping you said like is is that is there are you good with are you good with bootstrapping there or do you want to basically what i was saying is that um you asked me about ghoul's view yeah one difficulty and i I think this is a potential difficulty and again he has he's gonna he's gonna say things but for sure you have to face the challenge of aseity and perfect being theism right you would think that um if god's truly this ultimate perfect being it would seem as though he's uniquely ase. That seems to be a great making property. Uh, that seems to be a perfection. But it, it would seem as though he has to deny this. He says that the, or at least I think he says that the Platonic properties that are God's essential properties do exist ase. Um, now, yeah. So anyway, that that's 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 going to be a, a bullet to bite, I think, for many okay. for many theists. Yeah. Uh, they don't want to say that there are ase necessarily existent uncreated things that are not God. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. A second thing is that I don't know, like. This is just not an elegant parsimonious view. You're like have this radical divergent break in the kinds of properties that there are. Uh, some of them are going to be created, other ones are uncreated. Yeah. Um, and like that, like I don't know, the, the Platonic un- uniformly uncreated <laughs> seems to be right. more elegant, more parsimonious. Yeah. You have a unified kind of a view of properties. I don't know. It almost. And, it, and he says that he says the same thing. Yeah, he'll, he'll yeah. say it. this. This is kind of an inelegant bullet to bite, though. Though perhaps though the properties is radical break, properties created and uncreated all still can be grounded in God. So it, it might not be the ugliest thing, but yes, yeah. it is uh, inelegant. Yeah. So that is another cost. Um, yeah. Uh, so you've got the aseity, perfect being cost. You got that cost. Um, again, potentially you've got the potentially bootstrapping costs, which I was saying, like in order for God to ground these things in right. there's some sense in which ontologically prior to grounding them, he would already, as it were, have to exist. Right. And because something can't exist 
um, without its essential properties. It would seem as though he would already have to have its essential properties in order yeah. to ground them. Bootstrapping so squared or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, basically. So that's another potential worry. Again, I'm not saying because you know Paul Gould might be watching this, and uh, he will. Uh, he loves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, <laughs> and anyway, um, I, I've like seen him comment on on my uh, Facebook and so on, and I always yeah, love interactions. So um, I just sending a heart out to Paul Gould <laughs> but, and boiler up, right? So um, <laughs> that's right. Anyway, um, much love to him. But again, I'm not saying that this isn't Super Bowl for him. He might be able to. Right. Uh, well, and he probably has responses and so on. So anyway, yeah. uh, we could go on further with that. But uh, I think that's that suffices. Awesome. Yeah. Let's so let's finish up with the uh, the uh, TC unduly restricts God, uh, his freedom and his control, which we've been touching yeah. on already anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, I don't know. I know William Lane Craig has, has, I think it's in his fifth chapter in his book, he raises this problem as well. I know Philippe mm-hmm. Leon does it, but it's like, um, like in order to, in order to explain like the necessity and the objectivity and so on of, of numbers and propositions and so on, it's going to have to be the case that God must think these thoughts. He right. cannot fail to think them. Um, and in the case of uh, maybe grounding or in the case that he causes other properties, like, it seems as though he's like forced or compelled in some way to create them. Like yeah. it's necessarily the case that he does that. What you're telling me God can't refrain from creating like, gosh, yeah. wow. Um, again, you tell that to people in the theistic tradition going back again, some people were like, you know, screw the tradition, but um, you tell that to the tradition and they're going to, they're going to be like, Whoa, no, God <laughs> is definitely free to refrain from creating. Um, yeah. So Joe, but, does this, does this, does it enter in like a, a modal collapse as well? Like, I don't, think so because okay. um i mean you'd have a modal collapse with respect to a particular domain but like yeah that was the whole point right so like yeah they're gonna say that yeah god necessarily creates let's say properties in the case of theistic activism or yeah. maybe modified theistic activism um so yeah you have in some sense a modal collapse with respect to like those properties but like that was That's the goal the, right yeah. we we want those to be necessarily yeah. existing sure. so yeah, um, yeah you wouldn't automatically under that view have modal collapse simpliciter um but uh but yeah and even if even if god doesn't like create these sorts of things but if they're like uncaused thoughts within god's mind or maybe they're just uh uncaused but grounded thoughts in god's mind or maybe they're even just caused in god's mind um because propositions many of them are necessarily true they're gonna have to be necessarily existent god's gonna have to think them he must think them he's required he's compelled it seems to think them uh and it's like I don't know. God isn't free to refrain from doing that then. Now, of yeah. course, um, you know, some people are just like, screw your leeway freedom. I've got sourcehood freedom. So, dude, you know, mic like drop. That, you know? <laughs> That's right. That's not so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I um, think, I think you know, you're a Calvinist, right? So, yeah. um, you already say screw leeway freedom. That's probably. right, man. <laughs> Take that. I like, uh, I like some guidance control in my, in my life. Um, well, Joe, okay. What if, what if, if we don't want to toss out um, pap or anything like that for God, what if, what if, um, okay, he's got to think about these thoughts, but he can control his propositional attitudes about them. They serve as the content of his thinking or his act. You know what I mean? Propositional attitude, belief like state. Yeah. So he doesn't have like, yeah. What do you think? Does he still get freedom if he, He's got to think about him. Well, but... definitely not leeway freedom, right? Because God's omniscient, right? So he must believe all and only the true ones, and he must yep. disbelieve all and only the false ones. So he cert- he doesn't have leeway freedom there. Oh, well, I guess. Yeah, he does. Because he has freedom to, well, with respect to the contingent ones. Because he can right. create. He could create. He could cho- freely choose to create some of them or right. not. And 
consequent upon that, he can uh, choose what to believe and not to believe with respect to creation because he yeah. can choose what's actually there. Right, so right. I guess, yeah, with respect to the contingent ones, I guess he'll have leeway, freedom there. But like, and he's got problem, like his, his own sense of like divine doxastic, uh, doxastic voluntarism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Like, Oh man, theism implies a kind of doxastic voluntarism, but maybe someone thinks that like doxastic voluntarism is just inherently confused. Maybe there's like something in the nature of belief that debars that. That might yeah. be an interesting argument. I mean, I, I don't really find but that on, because God's right, beliefs are different. God's, on God's part, right? Yeah, so it wouldn't matter anyways. Like, yeah, God's we're not God. different. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Anyway, that, I'm just I'm just thinking off the top of my head. But um, sorry, I'm playing with Legos as I do this. <laughs> oh, that's all right. I'm playing with with stuff too. Okay, yeah. So like, um, but yeah, I guess. But the problem was supposed to be with respect to the necessary ones. Like, yeah, okay, fine. He can. He has the, the control, <laughs> leeway, leeway, freedom yeah, with respect yeah. to the decision ones. But the problem is that there are infinitely many necessary ones that he doesn't have leeway, freedom with respect to. So, um, I don't know. I feel yeah. like I feel like you're just going to have to say that God doesn't have leeway, freedom with these sorts of things. And I mean, maybe that's a bull. I again, we might think that a perfect being should be able to refrain from creating anything or refrain mm-hmm. from doing any kind of activity that it might otherwise do. Uh, you know. Uh, if if it can't, then that would seem to be some kind of restriction. And many yeah. people in the classical, the- at least in the classical theistic tradition, and just theism more generally, have said that God is free to refrain from creating. So it would kind of be revisionary in some sense. It seems. Right, and it's like the we all want to in in theology, like it can't be emanation. Like this is not you know Plotinus, but it seems like he's sneezing out these necessary truths. You know. Yeah, well, um, that's another thing. Uh, you know, trying to distinguish between. Uh, necessary creation and emanation like that's going to be that's going to be difficult um, yeah and i'm still trying to figure out what left i was talking about with his biggest bang and, and stuff like that i'm trying to figure okay, yeah. he, i'm i don't mean that derogatory at all dr left please come on um but i'm still trying to figure out it's, t- it's tough stuff like yeah you're, you're yeah. a smart dude um yeah and uh, i mean i guess so i really do think that you know the theistic conceptualist if i have my theistic conceptualist hat on i'm just going to bite the bullet and say Yep, no leeway freedom with respect to those necessary truths or necessary properties and so on. But he's got sourcehood freedom, and that's all you need. Deal yeah. with it, mic drop. I mean, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. um, it might be slightly revisionary with respect to the, the theistic tradition, but um, I don't know. And I mean, I do kind of share some of the intuitions that, yeah, a perfect being should be free to refrain from creating. Um, but, and of course, we're getting into the debate between like compatibilist and. Um, I know, we gotta just got, we, so, we got to so bring Paul Minata. Yeah, Paul Minata, yeah, exactly. step into the chat, and <laughs> here we go. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So no, that's that's a good point though. One's it's, one's one's views here might kind of supervene on one's views uh, there because a lot of people yeah. are like really tied to Pap. Um, yeah. Other people are like, you know, screw Pap, man. Yes, um, that's right. <laughs> it's so interesting that there are these divergent things. I'm still trying to figure out what what to make of of the free will debate. Um, well, I saw you just get that book for Christmas, so uh, I got both. Yeah, both those books. Let's go. I, I, those were unironically to try. And, it's not like I haven't studied this. Like I've taken no, I know, courses I know. with like Michael Bergman. Yeah, no, I know. I'm not trying to say with you, but like. Um, <laughs> I've taken classes like Michael Bergman on like uh, freedom, compatibilism, fatalism, foreknowledge, and so on. Um, and it's like there are just so many different views. And so, like the arguments, like I'm, I'm pulled by the ma- manipulation argument, but I'm also no, pulled by the luck objection. It's like, ah, uh, I, I don't know what to believe, man. I know. Like imagine, yeah, imagine that's your job. You're a philosopher of free will and you get to, you, you have to write an opinion on this. Like, I, I don't know. What the yeah. heck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly um but but yeah i think it, it might supervene on one's views there i mean what the libertarians might say like oh no you actually don't get sourcehood here because what's the ultimate source 
uh, of these sorts of things. It seems to be God's nature, and God doesn't have control over God's nature. In order to right. exert control over anything, you would already have to exist, and hence already have your nature. So yeah. actually, God isn't the appropriate source of these. It's something, it's like God's nature or something like that. It's something in God that, I don't know, is distinct from God qua agent. Um, yeah. So you might try to run that kind of objection to the to the sourcehood reply, that um, actually there is some kind of... Um, there's some kind of inappropriate source here that's uh, there's some kind of more fundamental explanation than God qua agent. So, yeah. And that's what I was trying to think through with the, uh, the truth maker uh, type stuff. So yeah, no, I feel you um, again, dude, tricky stuff and nominalism sounds uh, inviting when I have to think through this out loud. Well, with <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, but dude, thanks. Thanks so much for, I'm saying dude a lot now because we're both, we're both laughing about how much I, say colloquial uh, phrases and, pe- and it irks some of the philosophers. I say do listening. it more. Trigger them. Yeah, that's trigger right. Them. Pen- pensies and we'll go even harder on it. Yeah, dude, we're uh, doing triggering. We're doing that's dude. Right. We, we, got that's the, right. we got the memes. We got the... Yeah. Uh, okay, so Joe, you have, you've done a, like a whole two hours on uh, this exact topic, uh, the Augustinian proof. So I'm going to link that in the description. You got a book that hopefully gets like finished soon, like re- uh, accepted fully. Yeah, and review, I can, yeah. Yeah, tell them to hurry up. Um, so I'm looking forward to that, but, uh, where else, man, where else can people find you? You got a website now. So that's something. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I got a website. It's a uh, Joseph, hey, Joseph, he is uh, not Joe, uh, Joseph Schmid.com. That's J O S E P H. Uh, and then Schmidt, as you can see, like right there, there it ah. is. Okay. There we go. Um, yeah. So, uh, you, people can find like my papers and so on there and, uh, yeah, basically that's like my central hub now. Um, Joseph Schmidt.com, but like, you know, YouTube, Majesty of Reason, um, yeah. my blog. I mean, my blog is now going to be shifted to the the josephschmidt.com, but I, you know, for the next couple of months, I'm going to be posting on both, um, just awesome. you know, for people. Uh, so yeah, I guess those those places, um, and uh, yeah, and at Purdue, of course. So that's right. You'll well, find dude, thank that. Thanks so much for for helping me think through this stuff, man. It's still like a live thing for me, and I send. For those who don't know, I, I send Joe Facebook messages all the time, and he always responds super quick with these messages. And so it's really helping me think through this stuff. So, dude, I appreciate all your work and and uh, going at phasers so hard. I like that too. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate um, your channel as well. Uh, we both watch each other. Cha- I said this before, but we both That's watch right. each other's channels and really enjoy them. So, sure. um, everyone subscribe to both of them, of course, and yes, are perfectly unbiased opinions. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, thank you for having me on here. I really enjoyed this. I think this is such a fun topic. Um, it brings in so many different areas like cosmology, yes. metaphysics, grounding, uh, theory choice, theory comparison. Right. Um, yeah. Even math. We got into math. Yeah, we did. Uh, way beyond uh, my capacity. But uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. But uh, Joe will be back. Dude's awesome. And uh, go check out his channel. All that stuff, like Joe said. Um, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. 